Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the Relentless Truth podcast. For more information, please go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com. Our guest today is Ann Polk. Ann brings more than two decades of experience as an author, speaker, spokesperson, and advocate for men and women struggling with unwanted same-sex attractions to her role as executive director of Restored Hope Network. Her mission in leading the organization is to quite literally restore hope to those broken by sexual and relational sin, especially those impacted by homosexuality. She has appeared on Focus on the Family Radio and Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk, equipped with Chris Brooks of Media Radio, among others. She is the author of Restoring Sexual Identity, Hope for Women Who Struggle with Same-Sex Attraction, published by Harvest House. And she's also written for Spirit-Led Woman, Charisma, and the Gospel Coalition. Anne lives in Colorado, and her greatest joy is being mom to her three sons. Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. What a pleasure to be with you. Anne, I know you're asked to do this often, but I'm wondering if you would tell your story. I know bits and pieces of the story of your life, your conversion, your adult life, your ministry. And if you could just walk us all the way through the founding of Restored Hope Network, if you would. Yeah, you bet. I grew up in a family that went to church. It was kind of a moral story rather than scripturally based. I mean, they didn't read the scripture all the time, but nonetheless, I grew up in that. I I came to believe what I think was being communicated at that time, that God made everything but them step back, kind of a deist viewpoint. And um, so that was kind of absorbed by me, that God wasn't knowable or someone who communicated himself. And nothing about Jesus dying for our sins to forgive us for our uh, rebellion to him. So anyway, as I go through life, I'm a four-year-old. I get molested by a teen boy in my neighborhood. And that actually really disrupts my security, my sense of well-being. A whole bunch of things, but for the most part, what I what I felt at that time, I did have nightmares and all the rest. I felt like I had to push off any sense of femininity, that that was what was dangerous. So as a little bitty girl who couldn't even tell time, that's, mm. security matters for little kids. Mm-hmm. And abuse has huge di- uh, violation of that kind really makes a huge difference in an understanding of who you are and who people are around you and safety and all sorts of things. Anyway, as that went forward in my life, I made, I turned into a tomboy overnight, I, et cetera. And then that wove through my life until about seven years old, a little girl made a pass at me. And actually I felt like I had control and power and wow, I got attention. So that kind of began the thread of lesbian attraction in my life. It was that one-two punch sort of thing mm-hmm. uh, in my life relationally. And so as I go forward in my life, I get involved in 
trying to kind of, this was in the 1970s. So I'm trying to fit in with the people around me. And yet when puberty hits, I couldn't make the jump to light speed. What normally happens for girls is they're excited about guys. They're, you know, primping and, and grooming themselves and trying to make themselves look amazing. And I was still a tomboy. I couldn't, I couldn't make that light speed jump mm. because of the baggage I was carrying because of the malformation of who I understood myself to be and men to be and all the rest. So I tried to kind of fit in, but in the end in college, I embraced lesbian desire that had been in me for, you know, since about seven years old. And so that became my identity. I had almost no knowledge of God himself. And so I threw God out and embraced evolution as the answer because it solved a whole bunch of problems all at the same time. Uh, it wasn't because I came to an intellectual conclusion. No, it was um, it was a very convenient solution. Mm-hmm. So in college, the crazy thing is in the middle of all this, I started having dreams about Jesus, and it was not welcome. <laughs> it was not welcome <laughs> in my dream. I was surrounded by Jewish friends, so I I wasn't Jewish, but my roommate was Jewish, and so I hung out with all her friends and asked a few people off to the side, well, what do you think is going on? I'm having these dreams. <laughs> they didn't know what to do, of course. Right. And then I'm in a gay lesbian meeting on campus. And in the middle of that meeting, I sense the love that you're looking for, you're not going to find here. And I thought, ouch, I know that whatever I just, what was said is true. Mm. And it's really not what I wanted to hear. My hopes were pinned on finding the right woman and living the rest of my life with her. That would be meet my love needs. And so, boom, God delivered a statement from heaven that was true and unwelcome, and yet I knew it was true. So I went off and cried, and then I came up with, okay, well, all I want is really to be loved, and I'm talking to you, God, right now, and whoever the fake ones are, let them not answer this prayer, but I do really want to know who you are. Now, are you, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but are you a freshman in college at this time, or is it later? I'm a freshman. Okay. I'm a second semester freshman in college. So so you're what, 18 years old, maybe? About 18. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 18 years old, Mm. calling out to God, and God listened. He inclined his ear. He answered. I came up with a bit of a laundry list about things that would show me who the real God is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he kind of likes that kind of thing. He's really specific. He answers specifically. And within two weeks, I'd forgotten about my whole conversation with him. I was off doing my own thing. My pain was mostly resolved. And so I was moving forward in life, but God didn't forget. And he began to answer those things one by one by one and went down the list until I was now in a friendship with a girl who had left homosexuality because of her love for Jesus and that he was her husband. And so I'm thinking, well, I don't get this, but I was falling in love with the girl. And so God had me, <laughs> you know, he, yeah. he had me in a conversation to figure out who he was. And then I realized, oh my goodness, he answered all these requests. Now what do I do with this? Mm-hmm. So I started asking questions, got involved in Christian ministry on campus. The next semester I was, like the fly to or the, the fly to the light, mm-hmm. I couldn't 
not ask the right questions. I now was wondering, who was Jesus? Who does he say he is? Why does he matter in my life? And as I did those things, God began drawing my heart to himself. And in the end, he showed me that he not only exists, but he he, he wants relationship with me. Mm-hmm. And um, he ex- expressed himself in a prayer meeting. I sensed that God was in the room. I was with this group. We were talking about deeper things. It was called evangelism training, and I, as a non-Christian, was attending. So it's ironic in every way. But <laughs> God showed me that he was in the room and that he was full of kindness and power, both like authority and mercy kindness and power. And I thought, wow, I understand you exist and see who you are, just a glimpse. Mm -hmm. I have to have this person in my life. I have to. There was a no question, no holds barred, whatever you want, I give you, because I can trust that combination. You see, I'd experienced power without mercy. Mm -hmm. I'd experienced powerlessness And here was one who had mercy and power combined, and it was like, wow, that's impressive character. Mm. I can trust you. So that began my life in Jesus. Anyway, fast forward, I I wasn't in any way, shape, or form perfect. I was just somebody who encountered the love of Jesus and wanted now to work out the issues related to homosexuality in my life. And fits and starts, I even got involved in a gay relationship as a Christian, a lesbian relationship as a Christian about four years in. So prayer, Bible study, and accountability wasn't all that I needed. I needed some more direct help. Mm -hmm. And I found that in a Christian ministry in Northern California, one that used to be affiliated with Exodus, Mm -hmm. which is why that mattered so much to me, the things that are being said said that are very poor about Exodus. It was incredible help Mm -hmm. uh, when no one else was willing to, and kindness, and I just can't say enough about it. Not saying that they were perfect in any way, shape, or form, but kind, compassionate. And so the help I got there, eventually I found my feelings changing, which was completely unexpected. That was not what I was looking for help with. It was, I want to know how to walk faithfully before Jesus with same-sex attraction. And in the end, I ended up getting married, was married for 21 years, had three sons and who are now grown. And unfortunately, my ex-husband went back into the gay life. So this is very personal on a number of levels for me. Mm. Anyway, and then as he was falling into philosophies and justifying himself, he began using a modified version of once saved, always saved, one that is more what they'd call antinomian, which means that grace of God covers me and allows me to do anything I feel like doing, and God's just going to forgive me, so I can keep whatever. You know that Um, word, that word. The error of that's mentioned in Jude, so that that was very personal, and then I saw Exodus heading into that same thing with Alan and Randy, and I thought, holy smoke, I have to say something. That began Restored Hope when it was rejected. Well, I want to just pause you for one second and tell the the listeners that that word antinomian actually literally means against the law, and antinomianism is generally this this idea. Some of us call it uh, kind of hyper grace or this. It, it's not just the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the gospel. It goes further and becomes a, a kind of a denial of 
actually it's a it's a real denial of of who God is and and how he he designed the world. So yeah, please continue. I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, no problem. I appreciate your inserting that because it really is important. Hyper grace is a great way to say it. I think Bonhoeffer used the term cheap grace. Yep. In other words, we can use God to justify use his kindness to justify our own behavior before him and not pay attention to his leadership. Mm. So it's not a surrendered life to Christ. It's actually a arrogantly led, I can do whatever I want, God, and you can't do anything to me kind of attitude. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, you so know we, we've gone full on theologically heady now. We've defined the antinomianism and you've quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now that's, that's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> The contrast to that would be real faith. And here's something I think that would be helpful to keep in mind. There's a portion in Scripture, the word pistis is the word for faith, and it actually Mm -hmm. rests on the reliability of God, like the character of God. It's not blind faith. It's rather based upon reality. Mm -hmm. And um, two things, several things happen as a result of that. One it rests upon character and the person of God. Two, it, it results in the surrender of one's life to Him. And three, it results in the life exhibited before Him based upon that. And so those things are significant. They're important. And what we're seeing is a denial of the second and third, a life entrusted to Him and a life based upon that trust. That's beautifully um, so said. So that I find to be problematic. Conduct inspired by such surrender, and that's based in Second Corinthians five seven. So that's the challenge that Exodus was leaning into. And when things began to go down there, I did address the topic with Alan. I didn't expect him to bring in his board right away, but he did. And then there was silence for about six months, and then they rejected everything we said, which is totally up to the board. They were in control at that time. So at that point, restored hope began. We were thrilled that we started with a number of those who were first in with Exodus, like um, Frank Worthen and Outpost Ministries up in Minneapolis and many others. So God was good to us and brought us about 300 years of combined ministry experience to begin Restored Hope. Mm. And we have kept the line, so to speak, that Jesus redeems people and sanctifies them out of homosexuality, and that that actually shows itself in a number of ways. One, some people, as they walk through this process of surrender to the Lord and specific help, they end up resolving a majority of same-sex attraction in such a way that they feel free and no longer identified by that and not plagued by temptation related to it. Another larger group of people have some degree of temptation that remains, but they've learned to, one, how to walk faithfully before him, and two, maybe you're not as troubled as they they were by it before, that there's degrees of change in how, how strong those attractions are. Mm-hmm. But the most important part is that they feel that they are no longer controlled by their temptation. Rather, they are now have choices of what to do with it. So that's the biggest picture. About 16%, though, go back into the gay life that they give up or throw up their hands or say, hey, you know, no, I'm gay, and that's that. And and then they leave ministry with that attitude, embracing homosexuality as a good. And that is their choice. 
You know, mm-hmm. it's not about coercion or manipulation. It's about opportunity and offering options to people. And I think that is the thing that is most threatened these days. Should LGBT identified people have, have the right to pursue the goals that they wish, even if the gay community itself says, no, you shouldn't be allowed to leave homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, you shouldn't be allowed any other way of handling this. You must be gay and period. Because that's the message coming across now. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And you're so articulate when you, when you talk about this, I want to talk about just my experience for a brief moment. When I joined the Exodus board years ago, a friend explained that ministry to me and, and just for the listeners benefit that that is an umbrella sort of ministry that really is a, a network, uh, an affiliation of numerous ministries, and you named a couple of them across the country and even across the world. And there are there are just some people I think of as kind of, they would resent this, but legendary. Uh, you're one of them. And Joe Dallas, Stephen <laughs> Black, Rob Gagnon, Frank Worth. I mean, there, there are many of them, and I, I, I hesitate to even name names because I don't want to leave others out who've been such a blessing to me over the years. But I saw the beauty. I went to you might remember this, an annual meeting at Black Mountain, uh, North Carolina. And I don't remember the year. It was somewhere around 2010 or 11, I think. And I, I remember going to a dinner with, I'm going to guess, about 70 ministry leaders. And and I here, here's what I walked away with. I saw the beauty of gospel ministry that goes on across the country and across the world. We sat there for hours and I saw that lives are being transformed by God's grace. And I think those of us who don't have this same-sex attraction and related issues can benefit from, and I was just overwhelmed with this, from the very humble, very clear transparency and communication of God's grace that goes on in, in many of these ministries. And I, I hold to that today, that there's a, there's a beauty in these ministries. And I'm, I'm thinking of all those people and all those ministries when I say that. Would you just talk for a moment, and, and, you, and you've touched on this already very articulately, but would you talk about the transforming power of God's grace in the context of the gospel and the good work that goes on at these ministries that are, many of whom are now affiliated with the Restored Hope Network, contrasted with this notion, and, and I want to ask you in a minute about Pray Away in particular, but but this this modern notion that you just mentioned, this conversion therapy, and I might use the wrong language and semantics here to describe this, but but this behavior modification that some ministries get accused of of kind of having as their uh, uh, as their objective, what what I saw was was not and I'm and I'm sure they're across the country and across the world, there are probably some people not advancing God's kingdom and ministering the gospel as clearly as perhaps they could. But what I saw at large in the ministries that were affiliated at that time with Exodus was the amazing communication of uh, the very clear communication, much like you just did, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Could you just talk about that for a moment? Well, we really start with the foundation that God, it's based upon God's incredible love and grace that provides opportunity for people to turn to Him and surrender to Him. We're not talking about surrendering to And what I mean by surrender is giving one's heart and soul to one who's trustworthy, and that's God alone, 
and experiencing his love in the middle of things that perhaps a person feels ashamed of and coming, uh, bringing dark things into the light as far as temptation and other things, that's where a lot of power resides and it's backed up by scripture. Um, honestly, I think that first disclosing of one's difficulty or one's challenges is a part that the church in general, the Bride of Christ, needs to exercise. Like, it's scary to be that vulnerable with other fellow believers, and I think people stumble as a result of that. And they also may not know how to show grace in that circumstance to one another. What Exodus Ministries and Restored Out Ministries do in spades, they do it very well, is express grace and mercy in the middle of a situation where a person is allowing God to clean out the cupboards and the drawers of their soul so that they can have more freedom. So that's one element that goes into ministry work that's on a day-to-day basis. My office, Restored Hope Network, is really the headquarter administrative office. That work is done on the local level all around the country through the ministries themselves. So we are like Exodus was. We're a coalition. Right. We're a, yeah, we're a coalition of like-minded people who really care about others and want to give scripturally sound support for those who are seeking it. But honestly, I've always felt like what we had within those ministries, the church at large needs too. Yes. And they need to know that when they disclose something, that they ha- they do it in a safe place so that they can actually experience the mercy of God instead of judgment. And I think that we've, we've generally done that very, very well. I think, unfortunately, John Polk is the one who came up with this dichotomy that he would speak of, oh yeah, I don't have any temptation anymore. <laughs> so, so it became the language of Exodus as a result of John, my ex-husband, mm-hmm. on media, pretending that he had no struggle because he did have a lot of struggle and he didn't know how to handle that. So he, had, he was more willing to lie than be honest about it, even with his intimate friends. He had a lot of guy friends, too. He could have taken advantage of the opportunity there and the safety, but he chose not to. So that also is an option for people, isn't it? Really, we're not robots. We're human beings, and we need care and compassion, but we also get to choose what to do with our lives. That's an element that won't be going away anytime soon. (laughs) It's just part of humanity. We're created for that. As you were explaining this, uh, two thoughts crossed my mind, not to diminish ministry that focuses on same-sex attraction and all of the the related aspects of uh, of those ministries, but... Everything you just said about the church is is not just true of those ministries and that people group, but it's true of all of us across the church universal. We have to come to the end of ourselves, and we often treat sin in the church as if it's something that isn't talked about. And so what I was trying to say earlier is I think the beauty of the Exodus affiliates at the time and now Restored Hope is that I think you're you're helping to move the needle to teach the church what real gospel ministry is really all about. And I think of Paul's admonition in Romans 12, this whole idea of employing our gifts, deploying our gifts together 
humbly deploying our gifts together and outdoing each other in showing each other kindness, loving each other that well. And that's what I saw in these ministries, and that's what I see in your work at Restored Hope. Thank you so much, Don. Well, I think when I look at the scandals that have hit the church in the last couple of years, I think, wow, what if they'd had an op- these leaders had had an opportunity to be humble and honest about their struggles before it got to that situation? How many lives could have not been destroyed as a result of their choices um, to move forward? And honestly, when I look at the stats on how many pastors are using porn or have used porn or people in the church have, and so they're deflecting some of their yep. getting a high off of something that God says, no, you shouldn't even look at another person, essentially, that you're not married to. I'm reinterpreting Sermon on the Mount to modern day, but nonetheless, Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery, right? I mean, that's that's pretty intense. Indeed. So if we apply that thinking to porn, we've got a situation on our hands that's quite dangerous. And the integrity of those who are leading, the integrity of those who are attending matters. It matters to God. And He doesn't want to shame people. He wants to set people free from things that are cause them to be enslaved to sin. And right. that's in struggle. And that's the beauty of Restored Hope in the area of LGBT topics. It's the beauty of what Exodus used to offer, is that freedom to be. So to be real, to be honest, and then also to be sanctified. It's not just staying where you're at, but actually you find freedom in the middle of this. That's just one thing that happens. And that freedom starts with repenting and believing, and that's, that's what these ministries are drawing people to do. And I I cringe, so so I want to transition uh, with a, a couple of other questions, and one of them is is uh, you know we planned this conversation a long time ago, and in the meantime, Netflix has released a documentary that I think we mentioned earlier called Pray Away, and you and I were both quoted in an article written by Josh Shepard for the stream this week, and we talked about concerns that we have with respect to the content of this film. You were quoted uh, much more than I was, but I want you to talk about what you know about the film, its purpose, its its mischaracterization of, of ministries in that space, and and the ethical issues that you observed when you watched the film. And I, in particular, Anne, if I think the evangelical audience at large might not even be familiar with this term. There's kind of a body of terms like behavior modification or conversion therapy. I know that's a big question to answer. Uh, that is a big question, but, but, John. You, but I, I want you. You're so you, 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 you've been, you've done so well. I, I, I you you synthesized <laughs> thought so well. Would you just talk about that in the context of this documentary, Pray Away? Yeah, you bet. Well, first of all, they're coming from a perspective of people who've gone back into the gay life and they were seeking help or were leaders in those who sought help or at least spokespersons. So we have those individuals saying, no, I'm still gay. I'm always gay. You can't leave gay. Okay. So that's the philosophy underpinning this movie. And then there's one alternate viewpoint of a fellow who was never involved in Exodus. So it's kind of disjointed, but I'm so grateful for Jeffrey McCall of Freedom March. He's a great guy. So just sharing his life testimony out of trans and homosexuality, and that's a powerful statement in the middle of this challenge. 
What I want your listeners to know is that conversion therapy, that phrase, is actually a kitchen sink term. It's actually an ideological term. It's used by the gay activist community. It was set up to make it into something where they could take all the worst practices of the last century and throw it into this term and then demonize anybody providing kind care. So that's the goal. It's a propaganda term, actually. And it's very effective. It's being used heavily in media. I have a media alert on any time that phrase is used, and holy smoke, it's used all around the world. And the focus of the word is clearly stated in actually the end of the documentary. The fellow, Michael Bussey, who was involved in Exodus at the founding of it for three years, he later uses a phrase that's really, really important for the church to pay attention to. It is, I'd like to quote him directly, as long as homophobia exists in the world, so he's assuming homophobia is fear of homosexuality or disagreement really is what it means now, some version of Exodus will exist. Not because because it is not the organization, it is not even the methods they use. So they've actually created this term to imply horrible methods, right? I mean, right. behavior modification, negative behavior, negative input to modify behavior that's called aversion therapy. It was something used in either psychology or psychiatry, but never Exodus. That was not the point. I mean, it, it makes me laugh. It's so ridiculous to throw it in and against Exodus. But the honest thing he's saying here is it's not about the organization itself. It's not about the methodology. They don't really care what is being used, whether it's kind or mean. What they're saying is the the next part. It's the underlying belief, and circle that word, belief, that there's something intrinsically disordered. That's a psychological term, not an exodus or religious or biblical term and change-worthy about being gay. In other words, the fact that a person might want to change, might want to leave behind homosexual behavior themselves, their own goals, because they've encountered the love of Jesus that's reflected now in how they want to live, that belief is what troubles the big thinkers in the gay community who are leading the way in all this. Mm -hmm. So it's not actually behavior or method that they're troubled by. It's the belief that the person could or should leave homosexuality. And the could part matters. <laughs> it's just either or. This right. is a this is a psychological war that's being waged upon the church and it will in the end fall on her. So with if we believe that people can be redeemed out of all sorts of things, including homosexuality, as the Bible says clearly in First Corinthians six, nine through eleven in a very hopeful way, that is offensive to the gay activists who are running the show. Mm. That belief is the problem. So we have a big problem. We believe that it's something about what is being done or what was done. The truth of the matter is, all those horrific things were probably mostly related to psychology and psychiatry in the 1930s, and maybe a little bit later than that. But they're not even relevant to today's topic, and even the American Psychological Association agrees with that. It's even been written up in law, in decisions, judicial decisions, for the, I think it's the Third Circuit Court down in Florida, Alabama, and no, Florida, 
Georgia Mm -hmm. and another state right down there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, it's written up clearly because it's true. They don't have a basis to say that harm has actually happened. They do claim at the end of the movie that people are more suicidal as a result of getting this kind of help. Well, actually, the truth of the matter is they're less suicidal. What the people who did the studies probably had intent to show suicidality connection, they didn't didn't show the information that they actually measured. Instead of showing whether a person was suicidal before help and then how it was after help, they just lumped it all into if a person was suicidal and sought help. Right. So if you measure if a person's suicidal after getting help, even if they'd been suicidal before, the results are enormous. Now, they actually had the data and chose not to show it, which I think is, well, that's deceptive. It's intentionally fitting the narrative, right? Indeed. That people who get help are, are harmed. But actually, the data showed, if you put it in order, what they call time order in science, scientific language, if a person's suicidal before help gets help, what's the likelihood of them being suicidal or having suicidal thoughts afterwards? Well, for adults, that suicidal thought or plan was reduced by 17 to 25 times. For every, every one person who is still suicidal post-help, there were 17 to 25 people who are no longer suicidal. That is enormous. If you put it into percentage, it's really, really high. Mm-hmm. It's in the thousands and thousands of percent of reduction of suicidal tendencies. That's huge. That's yeah. no small thing. That's enormous. That's and right. so it shows that help actually helped people. It didn't harm them. So the very research they're using to quote that people were harmed is actually proving the opposite. I know this is probably a, a great mystery, but whoever it is who's behind this uh, this this film, and and you and I can name folks who are potentially behind it, but what are they hoping to accomplish? I almost got the impression that they believe that that because of this philosophy that they have, they believe they owe it to the world to rescue the world from Christianity, particularly this part of the world, this community. Right. I think they do. And I think they want to force everybody into one viewpoint. And any other viewpoint is absolutely not allowed because that brings conviction to the heart. I've heard in with the term conversion therapy in Ireland, Irish News, or was it Irish Times? I can't recall. They used the term conversion therapy when it referred to a parent saying, oh, no, acting on homosexual desire is sin. Thus, that is now conversion therapy. So it's really a kitchen sink term. Well, the people I think are trying to take care of their own guilt, actually. Mm, and if they don't hear that it's sin, then it won't be sin. Mm. If they don't have to wrestle with God over it and actually look at, they're not talking about scriptural basis for changing their mind. They're not arguing that at all. Right. They're arguing for an emotive response. It's emotional appeal, not biblical thinking. Well, the, change their mind. You know, there's a there's a group of people that I, I'd like you to talk to for a moment. And this is kind of a tough one because in the church, and I, I have to say, even among my friends, not close friends, but among my people who would call themselves my colleagues and friends, there are folks who, let's just say in evangelicalism at large, who believe that it is harsh or cruel or mean to call 
homosexuality sin. And yet they don't have that problem with other sins, if, if we could call it that, and groups of sins and characterization of sin. And I think part of the issue is the whole notion of whether or not a person is born this way and the philosophy mm-hmm. sort of, of of the day. What do you say to people who say people are born this way and it's harsh to call this sin to tell them that they need to repent to change from from this lifestyle to what you're really, you're not really saying that. You're actually saying we want them to turn to Christ, just like we do all sinners who right. commit any sin. But could you just speak to that just briefly to that person who who struggles even with the whole notion of this kind of ministry? And I know we've talked about this topic in this conversation, but just specifically the kind of the born this way argument? Yeah, you bet. The born this way idea is something that many of us embraced because it really quickly moves to, well, I was born this way. I was intended to be this way. God made me this way. So it's his fault that I'm gay. Therefore, I should be allowed to act on it. So that's the quick philosophy line of thinking that ends up with justifying oneself before God acting on homosexual desire. So if we use that in any other sexual context, we'd see the error, perhaps. Like, I don't really want to apply a whole lot of other thinking, but if you applied it to adultery, or if you applied it to incest, or you applied it to adult attraction to children, you would see that there are problems with that line of thinking, right? I was born this way. God intended for me to be attracted to children. Therefore, acting on that attraction is okay, So it's self-justifying line of logic, first of all. And so empathy is important. I think our friends are most pulled about on this discussion because they're empathizing with the person who has attraction to those of their same gender. And and that's, by the way, we're talking adult to adult here. I'm not throwing in child sexual attraction. I'm not trying to demean people with that kind of language. So... For me, it really mattered to know, God, what can you do in my life? What will you do in my life? What is possible? What's impossible? And so when I was in my early 20s, and that was a good long time ago, there were some studies coming out saying that a person is born gay, and there's a brain study and a different research that was being done, including finger lengths and ear development in utero and hormonal wash over boys, all sorts of research was done. None of it conclusive. The closest thing that came was uh, the twin studies. And the twin studies took identical genes and supposed that if one of the twins was gay, there would be a high likelihood that the other identical twin would be gay. Well, it turns out that that percentage was very low. It was below 50%. And so the research actually proved the opposite as far as science goes, folks. So it's important to note that. But more recently, a genome study of almost 500,000 people participated in, and they found a few markers in common, but the markers were very low. One, for example, a gay man may be more likely to be balding than a person who wasn't gay. Okay, that does that mean that that's causative? No. <laughs> it does mean that there's something, okay, they're more likely to have stress maybe, have fewer hair follicles in the end? I don't know. One funny aspect of that research was saying, well, we don't know why gay people don't have as many families. I'm sorry, but you have to deny biology to get to that conclusion. Right. Ova and a sperm. 
anyhow. So that was kind of ironic coming from Ivy League researchers to say something like that in their conclusion. But in the end, it turned out that there's a, a basically no gay gene. That's been known for a long time. They didn't find any here either with that huge sample of DNA. They should have been able to find something. And in a broad sense, the heritability is 32.4%, which is very, very low. That means environmental influence is is over 67%. It's an overwhelming influence on a person's sexual later sexual identity. There's no predictability to who will be gay, who won't be gay. And I'm kind of grateful for that because we're all ordinary humans who happen to struggle with different things. So That's how right. can we walk that out faithfully is the question. And I think that is the most compassionate way to look at it. If there was a gay gene, folks, we have genome designers who can check into how an, how an egg, fertilized egg, if it's a male or female, and then they discard the female. Uh, do you really want that happening to somebody who you love who happens to struggle with same-sex attraction? I think that's actually a pretty harsh direction to go. And um, what we're looking for is compassion and kindness in the middle of struggle for a person to walk faithfully before Jesus. And that is possible. And support can happen in such a way that it reduces the power of that struggle over a person so they're not tortured or tormented by it. And I think that is what I've, I know that's what I've experienced. And I think that's what people are really looking for is Mm. hope in Christ. So well said. And I'm wondering if I I have so many thoughts, I'd love to keep you longer, but I'm going to respect your time. And I'm wondering if you could tell this audience how we can pray for you and restored hope network and ministries out throughout the world who are ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ in this space. Wow, I sure appreciate prayer for wisdom as we answer those who are really angry towards any hope in Christ. They've been hurt themselves or they they want to justify their feelings and behavior. They don't want to come up against the kindness and mercy and forgiveness of God because they have no intent to leave homosexuality. And we need grace to handle that situation. There's a lot of hatred that comes at us. Names like I can't even respond to. I can't repeat. The gay pressures are really, they're powerful. The, the church herself needs to rise into being a transformative environment for those who attend and not just someone who listens and uh, is impacted in their mind and leaves, but their lives. And it works its way into the the whole way a person responds to God. And so I would ask for prayer that we would have open doors in that way, and um, Mm. that God would equip the body of Christ to be able to be a hospital-type setting for those who grapple with all sorts of deeper issues. I'm so grateful for the Christian counselors, for those who have incredible empathy and kindness and apply the Word of God in a powerful way already, and we know many of those. But I think the challenge is coming up against the gospel itself, and so being articulate, being able to articulate the reason for the hope within us is so important. Mm, and then so the true. lives that are being impacted in a positive way, if you could pray for them, that would be amazing. We'd be so incredibly grateful. Well, Anne, thank you. It, it has been an honor to have you here. I've known you for a while. It's a privilege to call you friend. I'm grateful for your 
your good work and the work of so many in uh, Restored Hope Network and other ministries throughout the country and around the world. I hope our audience will go to your website, will follow you on social media. My prayer is that God blesses you and your work richly, even during this challenging period. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, John. Please like, share, review, comment, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. And please pray for Anne, Restored Hope Network, and ministries, such ministries around the world. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. Thank you.